Hi, I'm Rick Rosenthal, and I directed Bad Boys. It's nearly 20 years ago that I made this film, so looking at it again with fresh eyes, I hope I can give you some comments and insights. One of the first things that we did when we started this film was to think of the title sequence, think about it. Michael Riva, who is the production designer, came to me one day early on in pre-production and said, you know, we've got to find a series of images that sets the movie apart so that it's not just considered an exploitation film or boys in chains, boys in reform school. And about a week later, he came back to me and he said, you know what, baby photos. And I thought, what a, what a sensational idea that we would, we would come up with photos from the actors themselves in character and they would start with young kids. And the whole idea behind this was that you would see very normal looking kids like kids we all know. And somewhere in the course of the movie, you would understand that underneath these bad boys were just these young kids who had taken a wrong turn. And uh, I thought that was really a home run. And, and I, I got all these photos, but I had to promise to return them all. Unfortunately, I think I still have a few baby photos of Sean Penn and Eric Curry sitting around somewhere in a shoebox. This was the second feature film that I directed. Uh, the first film I directed was a sequel to Halloween called Halloween 2, which was um, a horror film. But before I did Halloween 2, I had made a short film based on a one-act play I saw in an acting class that was a thriller. And uh, although I had made Halloween as a, uh, Halloween 2 as a feature, a number of people remembered seeing the short film and together with the fact that I had made a film in 31 days for under $2 million, that's what really made me a candidate for this film. Uh, ironically, I had played tennis on a pretty regular basis with the guy who was the vice president of EMI, which is the company that produced this film. And fortunately for me, on the day I had the big meeting, he wasn't around. Uh, because I think there's sometimes a familiarity that breeds contempt. I mean, how can the guy be a good director if he's a good tennis player? So fortunately, um, he was off in Texas overseeing a picture, and, and uh, I got to meet Bob Solo and Barry Spikings, who was the head of EMI, and we had a phenomenal meeting. And it really came down to me for, to the ending of the film. If, if uh, the ending went a certain way, then um, I was in. And if the ending went a different way, I wasn't going to make the film. Right before I made Bad Boys, I was attending a Steadicam workshop at the American Film Institute. And I got very friendly in the course of a couple of hours with one of the premier Steadicam operators in the country, Ted Churchill. And I said to him at the end of the seminar, I said, Ted, I want to do something kind of unusual. I'd like to give you the script. And uh, 
I'd like you to read it and tell me where you think you might do a Steadicam sequence. I want to stop here for a second about Steadicamming to mention that in this particular shot, Jamie Lee Curtis makes a unbilled appearance. She just crossed there on the screen, believe it or not. She was in Chicago, and she was coming to visit, and we had worked together, and I, she was just visiting the set that night, and I said, Jamie, can we put this big wig on you and just have you kind of walk across the street? And so that's that was Jamie Lee Curtis. To get back to the Steadicam question, I wanted a very fluid mobile camera for this shoot, and... Ted Churchill read the script, and we started talking about what sequences would lend themselves to Steadicam. And we started, to, we started to mark the sequences up. And he was very involved creatively with early on with a couple of key scenes that I felt would only work if we could just constantly keep the camera moving. So he got involved. Uh, he came out to... Chicago, uh, much to the chagrin of the producers who wanted to use a local guy. But in, in 1982, there were very few Steadicam, really good Steadicam operators. I had learned a little bit about Steadicam when, when I made um, Halloween 2. And uh, I knew that that's what I wanted to do, was to keep the camera moving uh, kind of relentlessly. So um, the producers asked me if I would go with a local Steadicam guy, a guy who was just learning how to use the the Steadicam rig, and I said, well, I would try him out, and Chuck Waters, who was the stunt coordinator, and I went out with a videotape, a video camera, and a, this local guy, uh, Eric Lumsgaard, who has since become one of the premier Steadicam operators in the country, but at the time, he was just learning how to use a Steadicam, so uh, we put a video camera on his Steadicam rig, and he was going to shoot some tests, and I said to the stunt coordinator, I said, Chuck, burn this guy. So Chuck went out into this parking lot uh, with a bunch of bricks and rubble, and he just very slowly started to weave back and forth, and, and Eric was running behind him, and then Chuck faked to the left and cut to the right, and, and all I heard was, oh, shit, and the camera sort of spun up and then down, and the Steadicam guy was, um, you know, sprawled flat out uh, in the parking lot, much to his chagrin, and... Um, we were nice enough, though. There are some Steadicam shots of of his that actually made it into the film. We we used them for um, small sequences, but Ted Churchill's really the guy who I think gave the film this this kind of edgy mobility to. Isai Morales was a real discovery. He had gone to high school to performing arts, but he had not done a lot of work. He had been in one film before uh, we hired him. He was just so charismatic and magnetic, and he's an incredibly well-trained actor. He and I have stayed friendly. In fact, um, I talked to him about two weeks ago, uh, right after he got hired to replace the lieutenant on uh, NYPD Blue, and uh, it's been a whole arc of our lives that have intersected He's, I think, very impressive as an actor, and I still think he's going to become a, a movie star. Sean Penn, of course, is a movie star. I met Sean Penn uh, in auditions, and uh, in, a, in a weekend uh, of auditions, I met Sean Penn, Kevin Bacon, and Tom Cruise, and I thought, God, these are three of the best actors, young actors in America. 
And Sean gave a phenomenal reading. I mean, just phenomenal. But EMI wanted some kind of a test, you know, screen test. And so um, Sean came in and he said, look, I don't want a screen test. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll put myself on tape or film, but I, I don't want to do a scene from the movie. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, if I get the movie, then I will have shot the scene and uh, it'll ruin it for me when I actually go to make the movie. And I thought, well, that's sort of an interesting bunch of BS. But I went with it, and we sort of ensconced ourselves in a small little studio over a weekend. And we said, okay, we'll just do a bunch of improvisations. And uh, nothing was happening. Nothing. And uh, finally I said to him, Sean, I'll bet you know a monologue. I think we got to go with something you know. And he pulled out this monologue that was phenomenal uh, from a play called Terrible Jim Fitch. And he just blew everybody away. Tom Cruise was great, but he just didn't look like a kid who was going to end up on the streets of Chicago. And Kevin Bacon was somebody that um, I thought was just a phenomenal actor. I saw Kevin Bacon and Sean Penn together about three months after we finished shooting Bad Boys in a play called The Slab Boys in New York, and they were just phenomenal. The leader of the black gang, Donald James, is now a director in Chicago, and I saw him a couple of years ago when I went out to direct an early edition, and um, he came in to read as an actor. He was terrific, but he had begun directing out there. And this kid here was an incredibly well-trained Chicago actor who just scared the crap out of us when he came to audition. He came in carrying this big pipe with uh, washers on it. And, uh, and then when he smiled, you know, the whole illusion of what a tough guy he was disappeared. Ali Sheedy was somebody who came in and read and read really well. And uh, we kept saying to her agent, could she just dress up a little bit more? I mean, we love her. She's a terrific actress. But, you know, we're just not seeing her sort of attractiveness. And so she came back about three times. and She started with jeans, and she got to sort of a skirt, and then she got to a dress. And She never quite photographed as well as I thought she would on videotape. And we ended up casting her. And I'll never forget being in Chicago and coming in from a scout, and all the cast had arrived. And, and this young woman was standing with her back to me in, in my office, and I knocked on the door and said, Allie, and she turned around, and she was breathtaking. And I said, wow, you look great. And she smiled, and she said, yeah, well, I got the part. This was one of the toughest scenes we did. For some reason, Richard DeLello wrote about five or six versions of this scene and there was one version I read early on that I thought was just terrific and somehow that version got eaten I mean it just got destroyed and uh, you know there was no copy of it or anything and I made him write eight versions of this scene and then I took all eight versions and sort of mixed and matched 
in uh, one of my favorite lines comes up in, in a little bit where Allie's talking about a dream she had. You'll see it in a second. some house in Park Ridge last week. That guy? That's the way it goes. I had this dream that you, that you went away. So did I. With you. I went over to your house looking for you. Your mother opened the door. She didn't say anything, so I went inside. And there you are, lying in this coffin in a red suit. Red suit. <laughs> you have the strangest dreams. I always thought that that exchange sort of caught where kids were, seventeen and eighteen. They talked in in uh, images and metaphors and similes, but they never quite said exactly what was on their minds. And I love the irony of of a Sean sort of misinterpreting what she's saying and and only hearing the line about the red suit saying, I don't have a red suit. I don't want you to die. Nothing's going to happen to me. I love you. Sean Penn came out about a week before everyone else did. First thing we did is we went down to a real reform school, which is the setting for a lot of the film, St. Charles, which is about an hour away from Chicago. And then Sean and I went out riding with the gang squad, the cops who are civilian dress, they call them the CD, uh, civilian dress gang unit. And uh, the first night we went out with a uniformed cop, sergeant, he said, you know, very gruff, whatever happens, stay in the car and all that. But the second night we went out with these two guys who were about the same age as I was then, 31 or 32, and uh, they looked at us, and I asked them, I said, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to stay in the car? And they said, well, you guys look like you can take care of yourselves. So we sat in the back, and we were dressed kind of, uh, I had an army jacket on, and Sean had some fatigue jacket on. And, and uh, we kind of looked a little bit like undercover cops, I guess. Uh, but these guys pulled up in front of a hotel, and run, really run-down hotel, and boom, they were out of the car. Uh, before we could even really say a word. And I looked at Sean, he looked at me, and we kind of shrugged. And we took off after them running down into the basement entrance of this hotel. And by the time we got inside, these cops had two guys up against the wall, guns stuck in their necks, in a lot of chaos, guys running everywhere. And all of a sudden, the door behind us burst open. And these three guys came into the room really hard with guns out. And the first guy came over to me and said, all right, get your hands out of your pocket and turn around. And I recognized him from a sergeant from a, a couple of days before in the, in the uh, police station. And I said, hey, sergeant, take it easy. I'm researching this film and all that. So he relaxed a little bit. But I was split up from Sean. He was sort of across the room. This big guy named Vince, who was about 6'6", 
came over to Sean in about one step and said, all right, get your hands out of your pocket and turn around. And Sean said, hey, man. And that's all he got out. This guy took Sean with one hand and threw him against the wall. And Sean just managed to turn his head so his nose didn't hit first. So we didn't break his nose. He bounced off the wall, and this guy just dropped him and was on top of him in about the split second. And the other cops are sort of a little surprised at this. And all of a sudden, one of them goes, whoa, whoa, Vinny, Vinny, he's an actor, Vinny, he's an actor. So the rest of the night, we're riding around with these cops and in their car. And all we hear on the radio is everybody's ribbing Vinny. They're saying, hey, Vinny, beat up any more Hollywood actors tonight? But for Sean, it was like the ultimate validation. It meant that they thought he was a bad boy. What had happened was they had seen their guys go in. They were the backup unit. They had seen their guys go into this hotel. And suddenly they saw these these two white guys sort of dressed the way we were dressed, you know, fairly hot on their tail. And they thought, hmm, that's a little strange. What do we got going on here? We got our two guys uh, on this, uh, you know, coming into this hotel basement. And we got these two white guys coming in behind them. It's a little too hot. What? Are, well, how come they're running after them? And that set in motion a kind of series of events. This is one of my favorite shots. I just thought it's so disorienting. You're not quite sure what you just saw. And, and uh, this begins, uh, I think, one of a, in a real extended sequence of, of uh, use of Steadicam. This happens to be a shot. That shot was a Greg Lunsgaard shot. That was one of the three or four shots that he did on the streets that made it into the, into the film. We laid this sequence out. It was very clear to me that I wanted to do kind of parallel action. I wanted to set up. Sean's point of view, the audience's point of view of the Latino guys, and eventually the black gang as a third element. And then, of course, the fourth element, which we forget about, is Isai's younger brother. You notice all these yellow lights in the background of this section of Chicago. We strung up all those lights as a part of our own production. Michael Reeve, the production designer, and I had decided that it would give a real distinguishing look. As you can see, in four square blocks, we just strung these yellow bug lights across the streets. So now we got all these, we got parallel action going. We've got the Isai and his his guys, little tribute to Halloween 2 there. We've got um, Sean and, and uh, his buddy, and now we've got this third gang coming in. And you know something's going to go go wrong here. But what you don't know is just how badly this whole thing is going to fall apart. We also tried to texture, sort of layer in music in different ways. It was sort of unsettling. I wanted this sequence to be very disorienting, that you weren't quite sure what was going on, who was shooting whom. It would be just a series of, of disjointed images. I look at it today, and I think it's almost there. I think if I were cutting it today, I'd cut it just a little bit 
quicker and uh, a little, I'd, I'd have it be a little bit more disjointed. But I think the imagery is real strong. And I think this moment with Alan Ruck is very powerful. And I thought his performance was terrific. He was a Chicago kid that we found and nobody had, uh, he really, I think it was his first film. And uh, later on he, he became uh, pretty well known for, for Ferris Bueller's Day Off and a number of television series. We shot this film on a, on a stock called 94. At the time, it was an experimental stock. It was new, and uh, it was very fast, and it had uh, tremendous latitude, very rich blacks. One of the real things that when I look at this film that uh, I feel I sort of made a mistake on was not this sequence, which I think works very well, but there's a shot just before this happens that's a close-up of the younger brother that's not moving. It's the only shot in the whole sequence. Everything else, there's energy and there's cameras moving a little bit, but that's one shot I'd like to uh, do a little something with it. Michael O'Brien, you have committed the crimes of an adult. Your previous record of arrests is extensive. Yeah, this guy who's the judge here, most of you guys won't recognize him, but I recognize him because he happens to be my dad, and he's doing what he does really well. He's uh, telling off young, rebellious kids and sentencing them to a little time out here. So um, he wasn't a trained actor, but uh, I thought he was typecast. And ironically, he went on from here, and he got some work as an actor. And he went from this movie to uh, another film where he played a judge that was directed by Amy Heckling uh, called Johnny Dangerously. And the deal was if she used my father as the judge, I was supposed to use her mother in the next movie I did. But the next movie I did was in Europe, so I, I still owe Amy's mom a job acting. Those gates that you saw, one of them was a real gate. The other was put up by the art department. Um, this was just a, a kind of vision I had of a reform school that would have a double fence around it. And later on you'll see that the kids run guarded between the fences but that was always an image that just came to me from from scouting and the moment I scouted this place I said boy it just it just has a great feel to it this actor Jim Moody had been in fame when you look at his demeanor and his physique he just seemed to be very authentic and he had both a gentle empathetic quality and a kind of toughness that I thought uh, kind of embodied what was popular at the time, tough love, a, a way to deal with kids that gave them attention and, uh, and involvement, but it didn't coddle them. And mental defectives, just like yourselves, they graduate at top of the class. It's tricky to start uh, a big makeup deal like that with an actor where you've got scars and you got to track the scars, particularly if you're shooting out of sequence. Once we arrived at the reform school, we pretty much shot in sequence as much as we could, but there were certain locations like the dining room which weren't 
shot in sequence. And so the makeup guy had to be very careful, take photographs and Polaroids and make sure that he could uh, keep the arc of, of the scars healing. As you'll see at the end of the movie, of course, he doesn't, Sean doesn't have that kind of scarring. That means you are not in charge of the zoo. We are. If you think you're hip, you're not. If you were, you wouldn't be here. Have I made myself understood? Yes, Mr. Daniels. Yes, Mr. Daniels. That's better. I wanted to set up this young black kid as a as a kid who was really uncomfortable with the surroundings, and and uh, Sean has a a certain affinity for him. They develop a relationship, but. Um, this shot that you're about to see now, this shot was designed as an image uh, very early on. I talked to Michael Reva, who was the production designer, and I talked to the Steadicam operator, and I said, there's a definite way I want to do this. I want to start by setting this up. I want it to become Sean Penn's point of view. He looks around and sees all the, the kids and the environment that he's about to go into. And we go from what is his point of view now over to what he sees up above him, which is a guard, and then back down, and we get a chance to see him suddenly taking this all in. Right. Then it stops being his point of view, and suddenly we're back uh, with him. We move when he moves. We feel very much that we're encountering the reform school from his point of view. Gentlemen, enjoy your rehabilitation. Hey, the man is over here. Point of view became a whole style of shooting that I really wasn't aware of at the time. I mean, I was aware of working a certain way, but I had no uh, ability to articulate exactly what I was trying to do. I just knew that I wanted us as an audience to identify with Mick O'Brien, with Sean Penn's character. And in order for us to do that, we would see what he saw. When he looked, we would see what he saw. When he moved, the camera would move with him. So now here he's moving, and we're moving with him, and we're beginning to sense a little bit what he's experiencing. Then we come back and we reference what's going on by seeing his face, and now we're traveling with him. So when he moves, the camera moves. That guy who just blew smoke, uh, you'll see him throughout all of these scenes in the Reform School, he's an actor now named Jason Gettert. He had no lines in the, in the entire movie, but he's kind of a featured extra, and your eye tends to go to him a lot. There he is back there in the black T-shirt, and he starred in Iron Eagle, and he starred in Easy Streets as an actor. We shut down about halfway through the shoot. Sean actually broke his ankle, and we had to stop production. And Jason had given up uh, playing college football, I think I think it was his last year in high school, and he was about to go off to college, and, and he had decided not to play football that summer, but to try to become an actor. So when we shut down, he came to me and he said, Rick, I gave up football for this movie, and now this movie's shutting down. Would you just promise that when we come back up, I'll still have my job? And I said, sure. And uh, about uh, 15 years later, I, I showed up on the set of, of a Falcon. I hadn't seen him since Bad Boys, and uh, he had told everybody how I kept my word to him. So I had a great reception at Falcon. 
My name's Horowitz. You don't feel like talking right now? That's okay. I understand. Eric Gurry was just a great find. He was. He just walked into a casting session in New York, and this was the kid. I found him so endearing and so believable that although um, he's obviously very small, there was an attitude and a kind of craziness that said, don't mess with me. And when he tells us how he ended up uh, in reform school, that he firebombed a bowling alley because some kids had beaten him up, absolutely, I think you believe that this kid is capable of almost anything. Shit. Fucking Mick. Bill Conti did the score to Bad Boys. He had won an Academy Award for Rocky. And I had this idea that I wanted what I would call a source score. And that was a concept that just seemed very difficult for anyone to understand. And I thought it was kind of simple. What I wanted was out the window here, you hear somebody playing a saxophone in the neighborhood. But the music he happens to be playing underscores the emotion of the scene. And Bill kept saying to me, well, I don't get it. That's score, right? And I said, yes, it's score, but it's played as if it were source. I never could quite get him to, to really go with that concept. He said I used to leave messages on my answering machine sometimes in a... Uh, Australian accent, and you would swear to God, this guy was Australian. And then after a while, I got I got wise to it, and I realized it was just Eastai messing with me. So, what's the talk? An act. Yeah, me too. I firebombed the bowling alley, killed three people. I was goofing around with some girls. Their boyfriends didn't like it too much. Beat the shit out of me. Came back the next night, totaled the place. Only thing was, I wasted the wrong three people. Well, time to get counted. We rehearsed in a way, I mean, we certainly had some readings, but most of the rehearsals we did were done uh, early on with research, Sean, and Esai had done a little research in in New York. He came uh, ready to play. Uh, I used to play tennis with Sean every day in, uh, in our prep period before all the other actors came out, and Sean wanted everyone to call him by his character's name, Mick O'Brien, which, which was fine with me, so I used to call him Mick except when I played tennis with him, and then I called him Sean. And I could tell that was bugging him. So finally one day I said to him, you notice I don't call you Mick O'Brien when we're playing tennis? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, maybe you're curious why that is. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, you see, Mick O'Brien doesn't play tennis. That's Tweety. Nice name. Tweedy and the Viking, the two archetypal villains. Viking played by Clancy Brown, whose father at the time was the governor of Ohio. Clancy came in to read. He was the perfect physicalization of the villain I was looking for, but the guy was so incredibly mild-mannered. 
that I couldn't cast them. I kept saying, you know, you've got to be willing to get much edgier and sort of use your physicality. And uh, I liked him, though, you know, and, and he came back three or four times. And finally, on the fourth callback, I finally said to him, Clancy, look, here's the deal. You're not going to get this part, okay? So what I do is I go out when you, when you uh, recover from the fact that you just lost this part because you weren't tough enough. I go out and beat up three or four guys. And after you're finished with that, come back and audition one more time, and maybe that'll do the trick. Anyhow, he didn't take me to heart, but he did come back and audition one more time. And I just felt that he had such a genuine physicality. He just wasn't willing to sort of let acting be what it could be for him, which was a chance to really do things in the art that you would never do, obviously, in your personal life. And, and I think having a father who was a governor probably inhibited him a little bit. But certainly in Bad Boys, he comes across as a as a tough guy. And uh, he went on from this movie to really have a, a very strong career in Hollywood. We're it. And you're on shithouse patrol until we say different. You got it? Sean, I think, was actually a little physically intimidated by uh, Clancy, although he would never admit to that. But Clancy, by the time uh, he met Sean, had really developed this Viking persona. And uh, I thought that uh, the chemistry between them was exactly correct. And uh, it leads to a pretty strong confrontation that uh, is coming up, actually, just about now. No, actually, here, here it's going to heat up. I guess we, we felt we had to heat this... A uh, little rivalry up a little bit more, and uh, you look at the, you look at the size of Sean here. You know he was uh, 18 years old, and he's definitely a boy verging on being a man, but he's definitely still a boy, and uh, it gave us somewhere to go with his character. This is our our really our intro to. Uh, Harwitz as a, as a dangerous character. Something's going on here with Harwitz, and he's up to something. And he's also very amused at the fact that he's now got uh, a new cellmate who is going to move his status in the uh, reform school up a notch. Ten bucks. Take it or leave it. Get ready, you want your radio fixed? Give them the smokes. Oh, it's... You suck. Only your mother can. I always felt that Horowitz added such a level of humor to the, the movie. He's just an awfully endearing character and, and uh, an actor. And Eric had a really good run uh, right after this. He played Al Pacino's son. And then he kind of disappeared, and I've never really seen him. I don't know if he's still acting or what's happened to him. Don't worry about it. 
one thing we rehearsed was uh, we rehearsed a lot of the physical action because one of the things I uh, I really wanted to avoid was the use of of using stunt doubles for the actors. So Chuck Waters, who was the stunt coordinator, and I talked about uh, how much training we could do, how much we could uh, get kids to do their own stunts. And uh, by picking judiciously the right camera angles and by training the kids, there isn't a single stunt double in the whole movie. The kids did all their own action sequences, all their own fights. Here's the double fence I was talking about. When we scouted, these, this double fence existed. The double gates became a part of this because of uh, seeing this double fence. I thought, well, it'd be great to have double gates. It sort of keeps the, the visual image alive. But from the moment I saw this location, I always envisioned, and once you have them running between the fences, the fences become uh, a very strong visual image, and it becomes a pretty big plot point later on that they have to get through the fence. This is a scene I was never really happy with. I don't know if it was really necessary for the movie. It just seemed like the writing here was exactly on the nose. I don't mean that the scene was badly written. I just didn't help it in the direction. I should have taken it somewhere else. This is, I'm not sure what this scene was really designed to do except to give us a little bit more uh, insight into Ali Sheedy's character and her loyalty to Mick O'Brien, despite the trouble he had gotten into. Although I did like the Chicago skyline behind them the whole way. I see you're responsible for the death of an eight-year-old boy. Rennie Santoni was my first pick for this part. He just came in. Uh, he just had a interesting complexity. He... Uh, was authentic. I completely bought that he had been an ex-gang member, and uh, we've worked many times since this movie, and uh, I always get a kick out of Rennie working with him. He's just a terrific actor and consummate professional. I just find him interesting. He's got uh, a rhythm that's all his own. Assaulting a 70-year-old woman during a purse snatching at 14. You're a real class act. You want me to go on? How you never did any time here before. One of the things we wanted from this film was a movie that was empathetic and not preachy. We didn't want to take positions about, you know, kids in trouble and why they shouldn't get in trouble. We wanted the audience to experience a world and, and make their own conclusions. And we had a hard time making making sure that we did not become a kind of moralizing, preachy movie. Ironically, of course, the film was positioned a certain way in the marketing, and uh, the critics went, this movie thinks it's not a reform school kids movie, and, um, and it is. And I think if we had positioned the movie as, well, it's just another action movie, another kids uh, 
edgy teen rebellion picture, the critics might have looked at it differently and said, well, wait a minute, there's something more going on here than, than what meets the eye at first glance. Anytime you want to talk about this. Or anything else. I'm here. Thank you, Amy. Gerard. Holden. So you're probably wondering, where did we shoot this reform school? Where did we find a reform school that was willing to let us come in and take over? What I think you'd be surprised to find out is this isn't a reform school. This is a set built in Chicago in the Naval Armory. And uh, at the time, it cost about a half a million dollars, which was a huge amount for a set back in 1982, 83. But it felt so authentic, uh, I think it was well worth the money. And it made it possible for us to do an awful lot of work there. And Michael Riva, who's the production designer, did an outstanding job in creating a place that felt completely authentic. He used to spend a night every now and then on the set and do graffiti on the walls individually. Hey, Paco, that's him. That's the one. That's the guy. When I'm doing an action sequence like this, I tend not to work with storyboards. I tend to work with shot diagrams so I can show everybody where I'm going to place that particular shot. There was a crane and, and what we'll see and where the equipment has to park to stay out of the way. And uh, I've always found that when you use storyboards, I like to use storyboards in prep as a way of exploring imagery, but uh, on the set, I find people begin to get disoriented. They see an image, but they have no idea how to make that image happen. I'd much rather use a overhead diagram and be able to show where the camera positions are. The storyboards that we did for Bad Boys, I did in L.A. before I ever got to Chicago, and I lost them. I put them somewhere I couldn't find them. And uh, about a year after I finished making the movie and it was released, I was looking at an old notebook and out fell the storyboards. And I went, holy mackerel. This looks like the movie I made. I watched this action sequence coming up because, as I said, we didn't double any of the actors. Everybody did their own stunts. So that actor actually took a fall for 
from the second story. And uh, he landed on a bunch of pads. But we had painted the floor over those pads with a piece of canvas so you couldn't tell they were pads. And we took the shot right up to the moment of impact, and then we cut to a low angle, and we let his head hit. Tony Marcus was a local Chicago actor. First guy we found that I thought really had the authority and the demeanor that I was looking for. You're on cooking detail all day. And this sequence, we couldn't afford to build three or four different offices, and we really didn't have time to shoot all these interviews. So one day I came up with this idea that if we built three cubicles, uh, one right next to each other, we could just dolly back and forth in one shot and we could sort of block the action to the camera. And you'll see here that there's no cutting at all here. You just catch glimpses of different actors as they, characters as they step in until we get to the very last character and that's Sean Penn. And that's all you can tell. All right. It's a great contrast in styles here between the three different authority figures who are interviewing the reform school boys and a nice contrast also in the characters who've been brought in for interrogation. O'Brien, if you saw anything that might help clear this up, it might knock some time off your sentence. I can't help you, sir. That's it? Yeah, sir. I think that scene's a good example of sometimes using ingenuity to solve a problem instead of just throwing a bunch of money at the problem. Sure, we could have built all those offices and we could have intercut back and forth from those offices, but I thought that what we did was really elegant. And you answer, you dig, motherfucker, huh? Fuck yourself. I'm gonna fuck you up. Hey, you got a problem? Uh, gentlemen, there's seconds for those of you who want it. Uh, let's try to be dignified. Look how much stronger Sean's face looks in, in this scene than it did when he first came into the reform school. He's still a boy, but you can see the boy hardening in, in the institution that he's been incarcerated in. Once again, now we're back in, trying to be back in his point of view. We're moving when Sean Penn's character, Mick O'Brien, moves. Camera kind of stays in sync with him. And we'll see what he sees. Notice that we stay down with, with Sean's character. We stay down on the floor with Mick O'Brien. We don't go up above 
Tweety and the Viking to look down on him, although that would have been a valid place to put the camera and it would have made Mick O'Brien seem small and vulnerable. The whole idea here is to stay with the character who is our protagonist. Again, that's what Sean sees. And once again, we're moving with our character. Yes, we see behind and above him, we see Tweety and Viking. And that's his psychological point of view. That's what he would see. Well, he does actually look back there. So that's what he's looking at. Again, through the use of parallel action, intercutting back and forth, we build tension, and there's an inevitable sense that these two forces will now collide. When I first screened uh, Bad Boys for Universal, it was about this point that Ned Tannen, who was the head of production then, sort of leaped up out of his seat, went over to Bob Solo and said, this is great, this movie's really great. He got a sense of what was going to happen, but I don't think... He quite anticipated what you're about to see. Again, these actors are all doing their own stunts. Watch this here. That's as good a hit as I've ever seen an actor take. And uh, he really sold it, as we say in the biz. Inside that pillowcase are just four or five pieces of foam rubber cut like Coke cans. That's Jason Gedrick there in the black T-shirt. You'll see him again when we cut back here, I think. Sean's shoe came off there, but he didn't stop to pick it up, thank goodness. I thought he did a good job in this scene, really portraying a sense of a caged animal. It's a kind of energy and attention there that's just great. We had to shoot this scene so fast we couldn't wire either of them and we couldn't get a mic in because it was so noisy. We needed to get a mic really close. So Isai's actually holding a little wireless microphone in his hand, hidden right behind his palm there.
guess that's the obligatory buttocks shot. Sean started working out. He certainly didn't look like this when he arrived in Chicago, but he knew that he had this big fight sequence at the end of the movie. And uh, when he first arrived, he took one look at Isai, who was definitely in shape, and uh, he decided he was going to have to uh, get serious. I told him when he went to shoot the scene with the Coke cans, it was all in the wrists. And I told him about Hank Aaron. I said, he wasn't that big, but it was all in the wrists. Kept wondering what I meant by that. Hey, Schmuck. What? Think of it as a present. Some present? Barn Boss gets 40% of the cigarette action. You forgot. Barn Boss gets to give out the work assignments and uh, take his own. The showers and a couple of the other locations were shot on location at St. Charles. Uh, there's just a little piece of St. Charles Reform School. There's just a little piece of a wall outside there that, with uh, glass brick that makes it feel as if we're tying it into the large set that we built. Bonsai. One of the things we didn't deal with was uh, really, realistically, was the amount of, of uh, drugs that kids this age were involved with. The feeling we had about this whole movie was that the truth about the film, the truth about drugs and the truth about violence, the amount of violence that goes on in this world would be very hard for an audience to take and would end up essentially alienating the audience. This was meant to be a mainstream film that would be entertaining, not preaching. And uh, I think there's a feeling that you have to use some humor and, and tell a story and not just hit people over the head with with a sort of grim statistics and and uh, raw violence. Um, in some ways, you know, this could have been the kids of uh, the 80s, but I just felt that the, that the movie was still pretty much a mainstream film, not unlike films that uh, Warner Brothers used to make in the, in the 30s and 40s, sort of social dramas. There's a group called a loop group that we use who put voices in after the film was all locked. They're the different voices you hear calling out here. And these guys did a phenomenal job on this movie just in enhancing the different characters and the different voices and creating a certain tension on the reform school set that didn't exist when we were shooting it. So here in this scene, we we try to make an oblique comment about literacy and the problem with a number of these kids is that a lot of them can't read. And if you can't read, you can't move on. But we don't want to hit you over the head with it. Um, All right, uh, O'Brien, you try. Mom, make the dominant. And this is a scene also where you get a sense that as tough as these kids are, 
They're still boys. They can't even read. Hey, look, this is nothing to laugh at. Now, maybe if some of you could read, you wouldn't be in here. You ever think about that? Look, you think of yourself as a moron. You can't feel that good about yourself, now can you? You just got back the results of that uh, literacy test you took, that reading test. You should be in the third grade. All <laughs> right, Well, I got my own reading test for you. I want you to read the comic book I'm going to give you and write a report on it. Shit. All right, I want you to write about the characters and the storyline. This scene came about because when I was in high school, the best English teacher I ever had knew that as 15, 16, 17-year-old boys, we were interested in sports. And he figured if he could get us reading, it didn't matter what we read as long as we started. He used to give us Sports Illustrated a lot to read other magazines that he knew would engage us and not necessarily force us to read uh, literature, which uh, a lot of us weren't into at the time. Again, for me, this is a scene about tension. You get a sense that something's going to happen before it does happen. You're just not quite sure what. And we always try to keep you guessing and to let the outcome of the scene go a little further than perhaps you were able to anticipate. So all of this is a little predictable, but what happens after this and the way Eric Gurry plays it. Nothing like a little food fight here. This obviously was a fun scene to film, and cameramen got pounded here. This is actually the lockup facility at St. Charles. I especially like the colors here. I got a call one weekend, and uh, the EMI executive said to me, you know, I, I like the film. I think you're doing a good job, but you're shooting too much coverage. And I said, well, give me an example of that, because I don't think I am. Coverage are different angles. And he said, well, you know, in that uh, solitary confinement scene, you know, I don't know why you needed all those angles. I said, what are you talking about, all those angles? He said, well, you got, you got at least two shots on Sean Penn. You got at least two cuts on Eric Gurry. I mean, that's a lot of cuts. I said, John, they were two different scenes. Oh, that's right. This is a very long, extended, steady cam sequence coming up. 
we actually did this all in one shot. We started from her getting off the L here, and we went all the way down on her back and through the turnstile, and we just decided it took a little too long. So we shorten it up here, and we make one cut coming down right here. Seems to speed it up a little bit. But we, we actually went all the way from the elevated tracks down here, just the way we're going now, and, and uh, through this change of light and going from yellow light to blue light, interior now right back out onto the street and right into a close-up of, of Isai. Let's go. Doing it again, I'd have come around a little bit more and seen his eyes, but we wanted to be able to stay on the street like this. We just needed to come around a little bit more and, and then come back around as, as the car exited. Nobody had used uh, extensively a mobile camera like this. Yes, they had used it in Rocky, but uh, only for specific sequences. We designed a lot of the sequences to utilize the technology. film start was so sensitive that the very few actual lights that we set up, this existed. We dropped a couple of China hat lights underneath the L, but basically this is a pretty much available light. Just a little bit of light splashed on her intermittently. She runs in and out of the darkness and car headlights, that's uh, one of our own movie lights there, but there's not a lot of light going on here. And ironically, the first time we shot this with Bruce Surtees, EMI said it was too dark. And so at the end of the movie, after Sean Penn broke his ankle and we shut down, we had to change directors of photography. And Donnie Thorne came on board. And at the end of the film, we reshot the sequence, and it was just as dark. This was probably the most expensive shot in the whole film. We had to rent the the L train and we had to set up the special effects. And the very first time we shot this, we panned down back to her face and uh, there was a big scratch in the middle of the film. And the lab out there was terrific. They tried very hard to combine. They actually made an optical and they tried to combine the two pieces of negative and get the scratch out, but they never could quite get it out. It was right over her face, so we ended up having to reshoot this sequence. 
you only get scratches when it's expensive. You never get scratches on a shot that can be easily recreated. I want you to keep your eyes open here because uh, there's a pretty strong uh, actor who comes out of uh, the car right there making his own little Hitchcockian appearance. Guy used to have a lot of hair. I don't know what's happened to him. Hold it right there, buddy. We need your cooperation, JC. I know what you're going through. This is an actual police station in Chicago. And although these two characters are actors, you're going to see in a moment a... Um, a cop, an authentic Chicago cop who plays a small part. We cast him on the day. We just went to this police station, and I talked to about five or six different policemen. And uh, you'll see in the next uh, scene when we go back to the police station that uh, we selected a cop who just, um, he just got it. He knew how to take control of a scene, and he turned out to be a terrific asset, I think. I like coming into the middle, almost the end of this scene, instead of listening to the dialogue between Sean and Allie. It just seemed more powerful to see the effect of the conversation on them rather than seeing the conversation itself. Kind of ellipsis way of doing a drama, but there are times where it's very effective to respond to what isn't seen or what isn't spoken rather than always seeing it, everything. I just feel like crying. That's okay. Cry. See me cry before. I always felt this was such a strong, empathetic scene for, for Rennie's character, and uh, pays off at the very end of the movie in a very strong way. He's tried so hard to keep this kid straight. You're number one, number two. All right, here's our Chicago cop. He just has an interesting way of doing this scene. Have we had an actor? I don't think it would have gone quite like this. Bruce Surtees, who shot the first half of this film till Sean broke his ankle, was such a delight to work with. I I'd sometimes have an idea and... I'd be torn. Should we should we make this master from back here, and should we go on the other side and shoot back? Sometimes we wouldn't discuss it. He'd just look at me and he'd go, "Yeah, I think that way's better." That's all I needed sometimes. What's your name? Richard DeLeon. Where do you live? Twenty-one sixty-six South Morgan. How old are you? Now watch what happens here when Eastside turns around, and the whole interaction. What's your name? Paco Moreno. That's him. Never mind me. Hold on. What's, uh, what's your address? That's him. 2395 Grand Avenue. Oh, like That's the one that right Okay, turn around and face the wall. Now, you couldn't script that reaction by a cop. He just, he just knew how to play a scene in a way that was totally authentic for me. It's a good lesson for writers, though. It's, it's not always neat and clean. It's actually messy. People talk by, by interrupting and taking unnatural pauses and never quite finishing, you know, sentences. 
want some company? When I first got the script, the guys who escaped were Peretti and the Chinaman. And I said, I think we're wasting a huge opportunity here. I think it's really important to get Mick O'Brien out of reform school. If he stays in reform school, there's no way for him to ever get to sense what he might be missing on the outside world and how he's blown it by staying in reform school when all around him his contemporaries are are getting older and moving on with their lives. And uh, we had this great character, this Horowitz, who um, came up with interesting solutions to problems. Uh, I always bought this completely, that he would come up with the idea of, of going in there and stealing some corrosive. And um, I always felt it, uh, you know, it's completely fabricated. Of course you couldn't do this. But in the movies, if you could make it real enough, uh, I think you absolutely believe that what he's stealing here, you know it's corrosive because it says corrosive there. But um, I thought it was kind of ingenious. And it came out of his character. This wasn't originally scripted. Uh, it couldn't be scripted because we didn't know that we had this double chain link fence that we were going to need to get through. But um, I think all of this worked out pretty well in, in terms of a, of a changing plot point based on the location. You come to a location and you say, you know, if we did this, uh, this could happen. Now we got to figure out a way to uh, get them painting that corrosive on both sides of the fence. Well, how do we do that? How about if they ran down the middle of the track? That's, you know, between two fences. That's where that came from. Once we decided they were going to run between the fences, then we just had to figure out a way to use that activity running between the fences to... Uh, come up with a, a way that uh, Horowitz could get the corrosives onto the fence. We had an outstanding collection of songs that were the soundtrack, uh, a couple of number one songs, uh, all put out by EMI. We thought, well, we'll get a break and you know, they'll do us a big favor and we'll have this great uh, soundtrack for no money at all. And EMI just, they applied the screws to us. I think we paid more for EMI songs than we did for any other songs. Uh, ironically, this film came out a year before MTV was used to promote movies, which was too bad. I think had it been a year later, all of the music that we've got layered through the movie would have been very, very helpful in promoting it. All right, so here's our character. Here's our Horowitz here trying to figure out how's he going to get this corrosive onto the fence. What's the matter? You hurt? Yeah, I twisted my ankle. You're not hurt, Horowitz. Come on, move out. Keep going. That guy's not an actor. He was the head of the transportation department, but he was dying to have a little part, and I figured, geez, he gets to drive a car. How bad can he be? I thought he was fine. I think it works because it's all out of 
Horowitz's character, and he pulls it off here. He's he's got such a great faker walk to him that um, you believe it. And and here comes the payoff to all of this. We we've, we've spent geez about ten minutes of screen time sort of setting all of this up just to be able to make this shot. Now, if you don't believe this, I mean, of course that's a corrosive. Look what it's doing to the fence. Tony Gibbs, who was the editor, did a phenomenal job on this film. When I saw the climactic fight sequence, I think I changed maybe two cuts. But Tony had a way of deciding he, he cut the middle of zooms out, and you go, that's never going to work. And that's what you just saw. We were on a wide shot, and then it zoomed in to a closer shot. He said, we don't need that zoom, and he just cut from the wide shot to the close shot. Now I, I said that the I said that the shot coming down from the L was the most expensive shot in the movie. Actually that's not true. Coming up is gonna be the most expensive shot in the movie. It's a very simple shot. It's coming right here. But Sean Penn broke his ankle on that shot when he leaped in the air to come down the ravine. And uh, we ended up shutting down for eight weeks and when we came back we had uh, almost an entirely different crew shooting the film here's a stakeham shot made on the back of an all-terrain vehicle it's the first time that anyone had ever done that i just had a hunch that we could do that and we put it together and made a little speed rail rig on the back of an atv and from then on, that became sort of a standard shooting platform for guys with steady cam shots that needed to move fast. Go! Now here's sort of a surprising moment for me. I, I never really expected this to work, but I don't think the audience is compared for this at all. Here's this guy who's beaten up Horowitz. Just totally seems like it's miscarriage of justice. Well, O'Brien is gone, man. You let him get away. And from that feeling of barbed wire and incarceration, we get from me one of the really big shots of the movie that sweeps and gives us a sense of space. And Mick O'Brien's out of incarceration and. He's back in the world again. I was up in the helicopter when we shot this, and and uh, when I came down, this was shot at Magic Hour. That's why the lights went on and all that. When I came down, the uh, the assistant said, "Oh, I think I better push the film. I think we lost the light." And I said to Bruce Surtees, "I said I don't think so. I think we should leave it, process it normally. I just think there was more light up there than." really was reading on the meter and it was a big gamble because if I was wrong it was going to be really dark but I think it looked pretty good 
John's acting and emotionality in this scene, I think, is really extraordinary. Very hard to get from an 18-year-old guy. Very full, but at the same time, very restrained. When Sean and Allie worked together, I always felt there was a, a real strong chemistry between them. There was a respect for each other as actors. They were never romantically linked. Uh, Sean was going out with Bruce Springsteen's sister at the time. And Allie, I think, was going out with um, Eric Stoltz. But I absolutely bought them as a couple on screen. They just seemed to have a, a, a real attachment to each other. Once again, I think the cutting in this scene is just very well done. I think that the editor just had such a delicate feeling for when to move in on shots, when to, when to go to the next close-up. We ran a little second unit to get this and a couple of other shots in the opening of the movie. A cameraman named Joe Pinella and I is one of my buddies, and I went to Chicago with two lights in a suitcase called Lowell Lights and a camera and a steak bed truck with a dolly in the back. And we spent about four days just picking up shots. And we lit everything with these two suitcase lights. It was kind of fun. This is Stateville Prison. This is a real uh, institution. And uh, about two days after we were here, they had a big riot. And um, it was not an easy place to shoot in. But Visually, it did so much for the movie in terms of, you know, scaring Mick O'Brien straight from our set of reform school, which is two stories high, to a real prison that's five stories high. And the sounds and the noise and all of that, I think, really added to this scene. We had a script supervisor who was always telling me that my footage was never going to cut, and uh, that used to drive Bruce Surtees crazy. And when we went into Stateville, everyone had to be uh, searched, not strip searched, but just, uh, you know, they were all patted down. And, and uh, on this day, the script supervisor was wearing this baseball jacket and a baseball cap, and uh, the guard, just assuming that she was another one of the guys, uh, patted her down. and. And then, oh, I'm so sorry, ma'am. Uh, I, I, I'm just really sorry. And uh, Bruce Searchy's got the biggest kick out of that. And for about the next week, he kept asking everyone, hey, did you hear what happened to the film fascist? Bruce was uh, just an absolute delight to work with. And we've worked together uh, three times since on movies. And uh, it's so interesting to work with Bruce. You, you just don't have to talk a lot. And he's a true artist. He's uh, always enthusiastic about making images and incredibly knowledgeable. 
he said to me, I had this idea of yellow bug lights, you know, the, the string of lights we were talking about uh, strung against uh, over the Latino uh, area of the streets. And uh, almost all the lights at night are yellow. And he said to me on about the third day of shooting, he said, you know, Rick, I really thought you were completely full of shit about this yellow light crap, but I kind of like it. This might be one of the few plot points that I'm not so sure really holds up. Of all the gin joints in the world, of all the reform schools in the state, uh, somehow these two guys are not only put in the same reform school, but they're put in the same dorm. I guess that's uh, a convention you have to willingly uh, accept or you can't have the rest of a movie. You've got six months to go before review. Do your time clean and you walk. Any trouble? And you could grow old in here, Jack. Jack became the favorite name to call just about everybody on the set after this scene. I can't hear you. Yes, sir. Now, whereas Sean wanted everyone in this scene, which we saw earlier when he came in, to actually spit on him and throw stuff on him, and uh, Isai insisted that anyone who was going to even think of spitting on him brush his teeth and use mouthwash, and he personally approved those who were going to be allowed to spit on him. So all those guys have definitely brushed their teeth, and they've used Laboris. I love the reveal that way. It's it's uh, it's subtle, but you certainly get that he's going to be rooming with the Viking, and you almost don't need this scene. At the same time, you want to set up exactly what the antagonism is going to be. This facility runs on a point system. Points are time. You get points for doing good and points for screwing up. Doing good is no trouble. Copying a positive attitude. While screwing up, is fighting, running for the fence, and copying a shit attitude, just like you're doing right now, for instance. Moreno. I love the way Rennie acts. You never know what he's going to say next, because he never knows what he's going to say next. He's absolutely a guy on the verge of of uh, completely losing it every time he acts, and yet he always comes through. And I think that, you know, in reality, in life, we're never quite sure what we're going to say next. And so much acting involves actors who sort of clearly have memorized lines and they're just spouting lines. And Rennie's got so much behavior going on. Always seems authentic to me. I love watching him act. Time stands still. Outside, everybody else goes on with their lives, working, making money, 
getting laid, all that good shit. But in here, time just stops dead. And this was an important statement for the film. This is about as preachy as it gets, the whole idea that when you're inside the joint, time stands still, and outside everyone goes on with their, with their lives. Hey, in here, everybody's the same. I think, in, in general, directors tend to over-direct actors. And uh, I, I know I always feel uh, very funny on the first couple of days I start a movie when I'm in auditions. Uh, I'm with generally sitting with a couple of producers and a casting director, sometimes a studio executive. And I don't tend to say that much when I'm casting. Uh, an actor comes in, and he's either right or wrong for the part. Now, if you see a spark, if you see something you like, but the actor hasn't quite nailed the audition. That's when I come to life, generally. But a lot of times, you're just looking for that magic, that spark, that chemistry. When I get on the set, if I've cast well, then I shouldn't have to talk too much either. Somebody once said, uh, directing is 90% casting, and the other 50% is hard work, preparation, and luck. Or maybe that was Casey Stengel, I'm not sure. I'm sorry I didn't get to finish the job. We had a phenomenal focus puller on the film named Rob Hahn. You'll see, this is a very tough shot to make. This is shot with a 100-millimeter lens, and it's just razor sharp. And uh, we had no focus problems on this film at all, even though we were shooting at night a lot. We had very little depth of field. But by being able to use that long a lens and, and have that move in one and know that the that the shot was going to be in focus we didn't compromise the the shots that we set up it's a big difference between doing that on a, say a 35 millimeter lens where it's of course it's going to be in focus and doing it on say a 100 or 150 millimeter lens when you have three or four inches depth of field johnson roberts Peretti, lee this scene's one of the few times where Sean and I sort of battle a little bit. I felt that there was a way to do this scene that would allow him to go through a whole arc of emotions. Here comes Esai, and he's going to spit on Sean's feet, and Sean's not going to look at him. And what I said to him was, your intent is not to look at him. But what he does is such a violation that even though you said, I'll never look at him no matter what he does, you can't help yourself. You look at him, and then you look away. I thought that was a more interesting way of doing the scene. So I said, well, Sean, we've done 11 takes your way. I'd like to do one take my way. And he looked at me and he said, absolutely not. I said, what are you talking about? He said, if I do one take your way, that's the one that's going to end up in the cutting room. And I said, well, you know, you got to give me a little bit of credit and you got to give me a little bit of belief and faith in what I do. Otherwise, you got to come to the cutting room with me because I'm not going to use a take just because I thought of it. I'm going to use a take that's the best performance. So I'd like one my way. I never got one my way, not in that scene. Smashed that white dude. Yeah. I hear O'Brien messed up your face. Yeah. It's too 
too bad. They killed your brother. Yeah, that's right. They didn't kill me. But it's not getting out of here alive. You forget it, Moreno. He's mine. Oh, yeah? Isai was in great shape, and I, I found him to be an incredibly charismatic actor. I guess you would call him a major babe magnet wherever we went on location. It didn't take very long for the teenage girls to find him. One day I was at Daly's, and Sean was there, and he was looking at a couple of scenes. And he came out of Daly's. He just seemed a little down, and I said to him, Look, Sean, I know you think that Isai's the good-looking one, and Horowitz is the funny one but you're the star of the movie i'm not a fan of actors watching dailies i think it's hard enough for directors to watch dailies and sit there and go oh god i never should have done that or i made the wrong choice or all that but you know it's not your face that's up there 40 times uh, the size of its of itself actors have a real hard time i think not being incredibly self-critical that's what he said Gentlemen, yo, you've all been graded on those latest reports. And I'm happy to tell you, finally, you're all passed. I like this scene. It's a little scene, but it sort of says that there's some hope for kids like this, that if you have a teacher who has an innovative way of teaching that you can get through to kids who haven't been able to read. You can, you can find a way to motivate kids and, and stimulate them toward education. From nothing. You know? That's me. And uh, Lofgren has added a very special page to his uh, footnote to his report. Stand up, man. I think it's beautiful. I want to share it with the group. <laughs> We had two kids that we cast out of reform school. We got them uh, permission to come to Chicago and stay with us. And uh, they were both very interesting. Uh, both aspire to act. And uh, one of them lasted about four or five weeks after the shoot and then was uh, rearrested. And the other one I really felt could go uh, pretty far as an actor, but he never stayed in touch. And I don't know what happened to him. Jerome died undergoing surgery at Our Lady Queen of Martyrs Hospital. So what? So what? Who the fuck is Warren Jerome? Who the fuck cares? Really? Shut up! Yeah, Viking. Tell him who Warren Jerome was. To do a film like this that has a certain reality base to it and that's a, in many ways a very straightforward movie, I think it's hard to avoid certain traps, certain pitfalls, certain cliches. And I think you need to constantly have eccentricities of character. You need to constantly twist the cliche a little bit to surprise uh, the audience to go a little further. When in the previous scene to this, the Viking comes up and says, more Jew boy, there's suddenly an introduction to uh, sort of race and prejudice that... Uh, hadn't existed before 
and it just tweaks the scene a little bit. And for me, that's um, that's what makes it kind of surprising. Uh, Eric didn't do that good a job there for me of uh, selling that tray, uh, that tray fall. Fuck you, O'Brien. Yeah, fuck you. You clean it up. Huh? Hey, You want a plane? Clean it up. Give your partner a hand, man. Those little comments, those little asides, those are the loop group watching this movie and then making little comments that just add to the tension. Rennie comes up with a pretty good tagline. Yeah, yeah, Lochran, show, show me your weenie later. Totally ad-libbed. Any word yet on the Paco Moreno transfer? I haven't heard yet. No, huh? Uh -uh. This thing's ready to blow any minute. I can feel it. Well, I'll see what I can do. In the meantime, we just have to keep an eye on it. When we decided to build this reform school set, the idea behind it was that we would have essentially two looks day and night. So Bruce and I kind of designed the look along with Michael Riva and there, we had skylights and we had built-in lighting but when Sean broke his ankle we had only been outside we had never been on the the uh, reform school set and Donnie Thorne who had originally been my first choice as a cameraman but we had dallied a little too long and we had lost him to another production when we shut down and Bruce had to go off to shoot a Clint Eastwood film I called Donnie up not to ask him to do the film I thought he was shooting another film, but uh, to ask him for recommendations. And he said, well, what's wrong with me? And I said, well, I thought you were doing another film. And he said, no, the film never came through. I'm available. So I was very lucky to get really my first two choices in cameraman. So Donnie shot all of the interiors and Bruce shot all of the exteriors. And yet I think the lighting and the visual imagery of the film is, is a very much uh, all of one piece. Donnie had introduced a modification of the Chinese lantern. He had had these silk uh, lanterns made. Bruce had used actual Chinese lanterns with uh, paper shades. They were both uh, very similar. This lighting turned out to be both very fast and yet I think very right, very authentic. And that was the that was the whole idea behind the visual design of the picture. We wanted something that would look authentic. We wanted it to be sparse because it is sparse and pools of light. And at the same time, we wanted it to be quick. It's time you put that piece of garbage away. He's gonna do it to you. This is lit just with that little uh, reading light. Both this scene and it's just bouncing off the wall and off the pillow and just essentially filling Gurry's face there. Yeah. Lights out. This was very serendipitous. We wanted a scene in the rain, and we went out here and started shooting, and sure enough, the rain came.
This is another process scene where we have to, we're, we're asking you to believe that Horowitz is smart enough to take a little bit of fertilizer and come up with, uh, well, you'll see. I like this kid who played Peretti. He was a Chicago actor. He hadn't done that much acting, but he had a good, uh, good presence. Dean Fortunato was his name, and he moved out to L.A. a couple of years after this, and I'd run into him occasionally in auditions, and sometimes I'd run into him in parties where he was working as a bartender, and I'd generally get a pretty good margarita from him. Didn't quite nail that shot. Didn't use the right lens there. Wanted to suck up that space between them a little bit more. Should have used the longer lens there. Could have snapped the focus back. So here's Horowitz now. Last time we saw him, he had just stolen some uh, fertilizer. And uh, obviously something's cooking here. to keep the movie up on a level of tension that um, keeps growing here. The film just, for just a little bit, I feel like the air goes out of the film here. Yes, we've got to set up these parallel actions. Horowitz is up to something. We know that. This looks like, uh, suspiciously, like uh, an explosive device. Isai Morales' character is up to something. We know that. We're trying to keep these two parallel actions going. But it's just that little pause for me. The air went out. Now we're sort of back on track. Things are happening. And uh, I like this sequence coming up because, again, uh, in avoiding the cliche, we've all seen these uh, busts, these prison searches. But very few people have been up against uh, Horowitz before. Michael Reba showed me what he had done one day. He said, I got something. I put something together for you I think you'll really like. He said, when this bust comes, Horowitz has got this hole behind the wall. And what did I do? I put a little mouse trap on the back of the radiator. It's a classic. You know, you show the mouse trap being loaded. Sooner or later, it's going to snap. It's just a question of when and what the reaction is going to be. This sequence here, I kept looking for the close-up. I knew there was a close-up of Horowitz here, and we couldn't find it. We just couldn't find it. And uh, the editor said to me, Tony Gibbs said, Rick, I'm telling you, you never shot a close-up. And I said, Tony, they're already calling me Dr. Coverage. I know I shot a close-up. So we pulled all the footage that was shot on that day, and sure enough, Totally mislabeled as some two-shot somewhere was a close-up reaction shot of Eric Gurry that you're about to see.
All right, keep your eye on that radiator. I wouldn't put my hand back there if I were you. Ooh. There's that close-up. That was worth looking for. I'm not happy about this, Lopker. Yes, sir. In fact, I'm very pissed off. I'm very pissed off! This is an extremely serious offense, and we are going to take disciplinary action. The only thing in your favor is you admitted possession of this weapon. I'm going to give you a choice. Four weeks in solitary confinement. Or four months added to your time. And this scene, we wanted to go for something again. Here's this big, tough guy, right? But the idea of spending a little time in solitary confinement is more than he can handle. And I thought that was an interesting psychological revelation. All this little stuff, this behavioral stuff for me is what makes it kind of interesting. We had to loop this scene because of all the shower noise. It's even better than it might. Great. Forget it. I told you that cocksucker's mine. I'm gonna take them out. Now wait a minute. I lost my brother. All you lost was on skin. So things seem to be building to a head here, and suddenly the Viking finds an unexpected present. Here comes one of the hit songs of 1982. Now we all know what's going to happen, right? I mean, clearly this radio has been rigged. The question that comes is, is when is it going to happen? How is it going to happen? And that's where I think making the right choices as a filmmaker works. You're kind of waiting for this thing to go off, but what you're not waiting for is to see the Viking do a little bit of dancing. Patience here is rewarded. If you go and you look at the radio and you really replay this stunt, of course, it, it makes no sense at all. The radio blows away from his face, which is the only way you could do it, because otherwise if it blew into his face, it would be a problem. 
So there's a plate set in the radio so that the charge will blow away from him. And there's a series of toggle switches, and he spins. And when he lets go of the toggle switch, boom, off the radio blows. It was actually a very safe stunt. Did it all myself. Now, you're about to see the appearance of uh, Ted Churchill trying to act here, along with my buddy Peter Kirkpatrick, one of my oldest friends, who was in Chicago for the evening that we were shooting this scene. And I just put them in the scene because I thought they could do it. And here they come. But there's a kind of funny story behind this. Fuck you! Kill me first, understand? That's Peter on the left, and that's uh, Ted Churchill. Now, well, now it's Ted Churchill on the left. But what happened was Peter had never acted before, and uh, he's an old football buddy of mine. So he was in Chicago, and I said, Do you want to be in the movie? And he said, Sure. So um, I told him what we were going to do, and I showed him what we were going to do, and okay, action. And he opens the door, and there are all these lights and a camera, and he freezes in the doorway. His hands are like gripping the, the sides of the door, and we can't pry him loose. And I mean, we have to like. Just literally just about break his hands to get him off the door jams. So the AD says to me, Rick, you know, we don't have time for this. And I go, okay, Peter, go down the end of the hall, and I'm going to yell, Peter, I want you to run the whole length of the hallway, really run fast, and uh, then come and open the door. And so he went all the way down the hallway and ran as hard as he could and open the door, and he had so much momentum, he really didn't have time to freeze. He got in through the doorway, and we got the scene done. But that was pretty much the end of his acting career. This is some of my favorite music for the movie. I think Bill Conti does a really nice job of, of laying in the percussiveness that's just a little arrhythmic and it keeps you just a little off balance. And he weaves it through and he weaves these uh, different stories and characters together nicely. John Zenda no longer with us, unfortunately, but I met him originally in an acting class, and he stole a scene that I was doing with him. Stole it really badly by eating a bunch of peanuts through the whole scene. After that, I figured I better get him on camera where I could. He was in Halloween 2, and he was in Bad Boys. Very little light used here, just that lamp. Just a desk lamp, desk lamp here, almost nothing else. Put out that cigarette and, get and again, very little light here, just these uh, China hats looking down. But I think the look is great. I love the way this looks. Gentlemen, here comes the night. Uh-oh. Here comes the night. That little voice that echoes, here comes the night. Uh, that was another Loop Group guy. But it was little touches like that that I really liked. This little scene got me in a lot of trouble at Universal. We previewed the film there, and the head of the studio said to me, uh, you know, I like the film, I like the film, but what was that scene where he burns a photograph? Nobody's going to understand that. And the the uh, head of production was uh, there, and, and he actually supported me. He said, oh, I think everyone's going to get that. And I saw the look on the studio chief's face, and I went, well, there goes the head of production. He'll be gone in a couple of months, and sure enough, that was the last uh, that was the last movie that was released under his reign. Hey, 
I always liked that scene, though. I thought it was a, a powerfully unexplainable scene. It meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It was just uh, symbolic of uh, a kind of inevitability that Sean Penn felt he was, or Sean's character, Mick O'Brien, felt he was going into battle. And if he came out victorious, he would not be the same person he was that went in. And if he didn't come out victorious, he wasn't coming out. So there was no point in leaving the photograph. I also thought of it as some warrior ritual, but maybe that was just the Vikings and I was confused there. job of making that real you really felt like you've been hit hard and in the head and it's not easy to do the tendency with stunt guys is to do too much to make it look stunty to me that felt like a guy really taking a, a pretty bad beating to the head Clearly, Issa had been working out as well for this climactic fight scene. He wasn't about to be surprised by it's just in the wrists from Mr. Penn. Again, here we have a mix of percussiveness and sort of suspense music, and I think it does a good job of setting all this up. spent about two days on a weekend roughing out this fight. We had a pretty good choreo basic choreography for the fight. Uh, I told Chuck Waters, who's the stunt coordinator, uh, what I was looking for, the kind of fight. I wanted it to be real. I didn't want it to, to be a movie fight. I wanted it to have uh, different elements, the element of the knife here and, and their physicality. And... Uh, for example, you'll see here as uh, Sean gets over on one side of the bench and then jumps that, that was choreographed. So we knew that they jumped back and forth, but we didn't know exactly that shot there was just something we picked up as we saw it. 
So you'd, you'd rough block it, then you would refine it. So it's a little bit like improvising. We had a basic structure, then we'd improvise a little bit, then we'd see what worked, then we'd go back and we'd re-block it a little bit, refine it, and shoot it. There's only one false beat in this for me. It's just one false move, and it's that Sean's not quite close enough with this little piece of, of metal for me. He's swinging a little high, and he's making it a little too easy for Isai to get under it. That, that swings too high for me, but certainly the knife stab works. And that swing, those are two swings that I just would, I like to have those back, but you get hypercritical after a while. We like this move onto the ping pong table seemed right. Of course we put it there, but you know, it seemed like that's about what would happen. And it's messy. This is a fight that's messy. Most fights are either over very quickly because somebody's nose gets broken and no one likes a fight with a broken nose or they end up on the ground, wrestling and being kind of clumsy and awkward. So we did this. We didn't. It didn't take us very long to shoot this fight. Again, I didn't have a storyboard. I had a bunch of shot lists, a bunch of ideas for shots that I wanted to do. And then as we blocked it, we'd say, okay, let's go in and get a tighter shot. Now, um, I'm going to share a secret with you in a minute. I'm going to tell you where to look. And if you look when I tell you to look, you're going to be shocked at what you see. Keep your eye on that knife there. Now, don't look at the knife on the next shot. Look up in the left-hand corner real quick there. You just saw a camera and a guy wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Now he's not there anymore. Nobody knows that, but... I shared it with you. Now you and one critic from Iowa are the only people that realize in the middle of this fight there's a guy wearing a Hawaiian shirt shooting a big panaflex on his shoulder. I felt like this part of the fight's pretty real. I think the breaking of the nose there is, is right, the sound of the bone crunching and all that. It's not meant to be gross. It's just meant to be pretty authentic and... The real question is here, what kind of a what kind of a man has Sean become? Has has Mick O'Brien become? Is he is he justified, as all of these kids are saying? Is he justified in killing him? This is a guy who raped his girlfriend. Which way do you come out? For me, this is one of the strongest moments in the movie. You don't know what happened yet. 
and you don't know which way you feel about what should have happened. And if he killed him, was he right to kill him? And if he didn't kill him, what does that mean? What kind of a guy is he? And that was the only ending that was acceptable to me, that this character has changed enough to know the difference between right and wrong. And a lot of it's come about because of the efforts of this guy here. And when they look at each other, there's an understanding that they have that to me was very powerful. For me, this is Sean's finest moment of acting. There's very few actors I know who at that age could pull this moment off. Everywhere I saw the film in the theater, audiences were really quiet after they discovered that Sean hadn't killed Esai. And nobody said a word right through the credits. This for me was the only ending that I would have made. I just couldn't see any other ending. I certainly couldn't see uh, Mick O'Brien killing Paco at the end. And when we previewed the movie, it was very interesting. We previewed in both Philadelphia and Denver to a predominantly teenage mixed race audience. And uh, the moment when it's revealed that, that uh, Paco is, is still alive, there was a real split in the audience. And about half the audience was, oh, man, that's bogus. You know, you should have killed him. The other half of the audience was, was I think, profoundly moved and touched by the fact that Mick O'Brien had evolved enough so he could tell in the end the difference between right and wrong. For me, this was a movie that was risky and tough at the time, but I felt it was authentic. I spent enough time talking to a lot of kids and meeting with a lot of kids who were on the wrong side of the law for whatever reason. I spent a lot of time reading about gangs and talking about gangs and I felt always that the film was as tough and as edgy as it could be and uh, still find an audience. And I look back at the film and I, and I think we got it right. And I look at the film today and I think it holds up. And what's always interesting to me is um, to be on the set somewhere and, and to have an actor say to me, you know, you did a movie that I saw when I was eight or 10 or 12 or in high school and I never forgot it. So that told me I think that we did it about right. A lot of the critics felt it was way too violent and too edgy, but almost to a person they, uh, they recognized what strong performance Sean gave and they acknowledged uh, the strength that Esai had. Unfortunately, the film was a 
production that was financed by EMI Films but released by Universal. And Universal really didn't have a lot at stake, in the, and they didn't really put a lot of money up to uh, promote the movie and get it into the theaters. It, it opened on 450 screens the same weekend that The Outsiders opened, and we had a very similar uh, per-screen average, but uh, you know we had about a tenth the uh, promotional budget. The film became a cult hit. Just there are very few people I know uh, that I deal with that don't know this movie. I was outraged a few years ago when Simpson and Bruckheimer somehow got a hold of the title Bad Boys. Some money changed hands somewhere, and and before I knew it, I didn't have uh, the sole Bad Boys on the video shelves. But the film is um, is never broken even. It's in debt just about what it brings in every year in revenues. And uh, if they would ever sell this film to network television, it plays on television all the time and it plays on cable all the time, but it's uh, just in the red, just what a network sale would uh, be. Um, who knows? You know, uh, Sean Penn at some point, I mean, he's certainly a big star now, but there may be some real interest still in movies of his that haven't gone to network television. When we previewed the film in Philadelphia, Sean was in New York doing a play. He had not seen any of the film cut together. When the lights came up after the preview, I think he was surprised, uh, pleased, and uh, a little shocked at how powerful the film was and how strong his performance was. I think he never quite understood when he was making the film how good he was in it and how it would all fit together. That's a trip down memory lane for me of about 18 years ago. I was probably a lot tougher then than I am now, but um, I can still take Sean Penn and Isai Morales, so uh, I'm not worried about that. I don't know if I can take them together. They might be a little too tough for me, but I know I can take Isai. I took him 20 years ago, and I'm still waiting for the rematch. And uh, I know Sean thinks it's all on the wrists, and it probably is, but, you know, it's in the eyes, too. So um, I had a great time making the film. I hope you enjoyed watching it, and uh, I'm glad to offer a little bit of recollection of what it was like when we were there. <laughs> ¶¶